Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books Network. My name is uh, Christopher Davey. I'm the Charles E. Scheid Visiting uh, Assistant Professor of Genocide Studies and Prevention at the Strasser Center for Holocaust and Genocide Studies at Clark University, um, Massachusetts in the US. And I'm very pleased to welcome uh, to the New Books Network today, Dr. Raymond Kwan Sun Lao. He's an assistant professor of political science at North South University in Bangladesh and holds a PhD in political science from the University of Queensland, Queensland in Australia. Welcome, Raymond. Uh, hello, uh, Professor uh, Chris Davey, and thank you for having me here. No problem. It's a pleasure. So we're going to be talking, um, well, I'm going to be talking with you today uh, about your recent book, uh, Responding to Mass Atrocities in Africa, Protection First and Justice Later. And this was published uh, this year, 2022, by Routledge. Uh, So we're going to be discussing the book today and just thinking um, broadly about what responsibility to protect means in the continent of Africa. So it would be helpful for our listeners to know a little bit more about you. Uh, might you introduce yourself, tell us about your career and why you chose to work in political science uh, with a focus on Africa? Sure. So uh, again, a very uh, good morning, uh, to, uh, Professor uh, Chris Davey. Once again, thank you very much for your uh, very kind in, uh, invitation and a generous introduction. I'm really glad to be here on this occasion, uh, sharing my thoughts and observations uh, relating to my book. Uh, so first of all, my name uh, is uh, Kun Sun Lao, so you guys can uh, just call me Raymond. And I was uh, born and raised in Hong Kong, originally. And uh, I hold a PhD uh, in political science uh, from the University of Queensland in Australia. And I once worked uh, as a lecturer in history at uh, Hong Kong Baptist University uh, for some five to six years uh, before uh, I relocated again from Hong Kong to Bangladesh uh, in September last year. So currently I'm based in Dhaka, the capital of Bangladesh, and working uh, at the North South University as an assistant professor of uh, political science. Uh, okay, so talk about uh, why working in political science with a focus of uh, African studies. Um, I think I would say uh, my love story, so to speak, <laughs> my love story with African studies or African politics uh, can be traced back okay, to a postgraduate level course that I enrolled uh, with Professor Jeffrey Hawker. Uh, when I was studying my uh, master's degree at Macquarie University in Australia as well. Uh, I would say there are two um, reasons again, why I feel uh, doing African studies or doing political science with a focus on Africa is important. I think first, uh, studying politics or political phenomena outside uh, my familiar settings can actually ha- help I mean, adding a new dimension of understanding, and that can definitely also help uh, overcoming uh, kind of uh, ethnocentrism uh, mindset or mentality. And second reason, I would say, uh, Africa's wide variety of uh, languages, cultures, uh, political ideas, and systems can 
uh, definitely provide okay, very uh, valuable insights okay, into our understanding of world history and uh, international politics. So in other words, I'm uh, convinced that uh, doing African studies, uh, studying African politics is uh, invaluable uh, for the study of political uh, science and uh, international relations. Yes. Mm, thank you. Now that's a really insightful uh, response, and I think that yeah, you. I mean, for, for me, I sort of you know share the same view, if you will, right? That there's much that we can learn uh, about about the continent from the view of political science that um, is is really helpful and instructive for us. So we're here to talk about your recent book, of course. I wonder if, in a few words, you could tell us what the book is about. Uh, sure, yeah. Um, I think the starting point uh, of my book uh, is that uh, there is uh, confidence, uh, sorry, there's evidence of uh, changing expectations and uh, emerging concerns uh, about how to respond to uh, genocide and mass atrocities in a more effective and uh, consistent manner since the 1994 genocide in uh, Rwanda. And so, uh, therefore, uh, what I'm trying to do uh, in this book is about how to make a better use of international protection and punishment efforts uh, in order to address genocide and mass, mass atrocities by exploring uh, the relationship okay, between the uh, responsibility to protect, in short, the R2P principle and the uh, International uh, Criminal Court, the ICC. And there are two uh, main questions that I'm trying to address in this book. Uh, first is to what extent are international efforts for protecting vulnerable populations from genocide and mass atrocities and punishing uh, perpetrators complementary or mutually enforcing? And question number two, if the relationship okay, between R2P uh, and ICC is not always complementary, or mutually reinforcing, then what are the uh, principal causes of tension between the two? And so I'm trying to uh, answer uh, these questions by examining three uh, case studies uh, of uh, North Uganda, uh, Darfur, and Kenya. And my uh, conclusion uh, of the book is, is that the relationship okay, between uh, R2P and ICC okay, is not always uh, complementary or mutually reinforcing, but instead uh, the overriding policy issue okay, and the cornerstone dilemma for international policy makers uh, relates to managing the tension okay, between uh, the immediate imperative of saving lives and the important prospects of punishing perpetrators and uh, preventing future conflicts through uh, deterrence. So uh, my main argument in this book is that adopting a protection-first, justice-later approach or situating R2B and ICC in a protection-first and justice-later temporal sequence is uh, necessary uh, for managing the tension okay, between uh, the R2P's urgent imperative to save lives and the uh, ICC's efforts to uphold justice and deter future mass atrocities. And this approach, uh, as I suggest, can help uh, facilitating more effective and uh, consistent international uh, 
uh, responses. So I think this, yeah, this is basically what uh, I'm trying to do in this book. Yeah. Thank, mm, you. thank you. So just to help um, some of our listeners who perhaps are generally familiar, but would maybe be helpful with a little bit more context, could you explain to us what responsibility to protect is, um, but what does it particularly mean for the continent of Africa? Sure, sure. Uh, I think at its uh, simplest, uh, the responsibility to protect, or in short, the R2P, uh, emphasize that a state uh, has a, has the primary responsibility uh, to protect its population from the four specific mass, mass atrocity crimes under international law, so namely uh, genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity, and ethnic cleansing. And the international uh, society also uh, has the responsibility to uh, assist other countries in upholding their protection responsibility. But uh, if a state is proved to be uh, unwilling or unable to protect their populations, then the international society should respond and take action. I mean, uh, by assuming that uh, protection responsibility. So after all, uh, R2P uh, in many ways can be said as a global political commitment, okay, which is uh, being endorsed by all the UN member states. Uh, during the uh, 2005 UN World Summit. Um, okay, talking about what R2, what does R2P mean for the continent of Africa? Um, I think in many ways, um, R2P uh, does have its intellectual roots in Africa. Uh, for example, uh, Francis Ding, uh, who is a Sudanese scholar, and he also served as a special representative of the UN uh, Secretary General for the Internal Displaced Persons, I think from uh, 1992 to 2004. So he once developed the concept which is known as sovereignty as uh, responsibility in the uh, mid-1990s. And this concept uh, rests on the idea that sovereignty entails a responsibility for promoting citizens' welfare and uh, liberty. Again, not just merely a right to non-interference from external actors. And so in many ways, again, this uh, sovereignty as responsibility concept being advocated by Francis Ding uh, has provided a very uh, important intellectual backbone uh, for the emergence of this outer principle. So I think in this sense, uh, I think it, it's not an exaggeration uh, for us to suggest that uh, the emergence and the development of this R2P principle um, can enable African state leaders okay, to promote uh, responsible sovereignty on the African continent. Uh, given again okay, the strong, I mean, given the 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 R2P's its uh, strong historical connection with Africa. Yeah, I think this is what I would say, what R2P's means uh, in the context of Africa. Mm, yeah, I think those, those intellectual uh, roots, as you call them, are often sort of lost <laughs> in history a little bit because we tend to think of 
responsibility to protect us, this sort of Canadian idea that came out of the aftermath of, you know, uh, Rwanda and Bosnia. So you introduced in your earlier description of the book, uh, and it's in your title, right, this phrase, protection first, justice later. Um, could you just explain a little bit more about what this is? And you mentioned how there's a bit of a temporality here and sequencing. Um, could you maybe just explain for us you know, what this is and then and how it works in practice? Okay, sure. Uh, so as um, I've just argued, uh, what, uh, what I'm trying to argue in this book is uh, situating uh I mean, the, yeah, situating uh, R2P and the ICC in the protection first and justice later uh, sequence is crucial okay, for the uh, management okay, of tension okay, existing between the two. Uh, I would say uh, the rationale okay, behind uh, the adoption of this uh, protection first and uh, justice later is because uh, given that, as I said, mentioned, uh, there has been a changing uh, international expectation right, in terms of uh, triggering uh, uh, a more uh, effective and and uh, consistent uh, response uh, for the protection of civilians and punishment perpetrators. So, in this sense, uh, we say the debate surrounding. Uh, international policymakers in addressing mass atrocity is not about, or it's not about the question of whether, right, but instead when and how uh, R2P and ICC can and should be invoked in those uh, conflict situations. So, in this sense, uh, my argument that I'm trying to make here is that a focus on not just what, uh, but when, uh, in other words, the, the, the temporal ordering. Uh, that can uh, actually uh, help shaping okay, the, the outcomes. So I think in this sense, this is closely related to the uh, concepts of, uh, say, path-dependent processes in politics. Right? The, uh, yeah, the path-dependent processes in politics. And I mean, in, in, in terms of putting these path-dependent uh, processes into uh perspective uh, so uh, it is important okay, for international uh, policymakers to pay uh, close attention okay, to the temporal nature of these linkages I mean the R2B and ICC linkages and because uh, as a situating uh, civilian protection and perpetrator punishment in a proper temporal sequence, uh, would have a very significant impact on outcomes, okay, which are uh, protecting civilians from uh, uh, further violence and bloodshed, as well as uh, bringing uh, perpetrators uh, into justice after the fact. And so, yeah, I would say uh, this is about uh, paying attention, okay, to the temporal ordering, okay, of R2P and ICC linkages. Mm, thank you for that. And it's really helpful to sort of frame it in that way and directing, as you say, our attention to that that linkage, not only in terms of ordering, but then in terms of how we in, these institutions are engaged in conflicts in the continent. 
so just to develop that a little bit more, uh, again, with this idea of protection first and justice later, um, what, are, what are some of the specifics here as they're related to the continent of Africa? Is there, is there in your approach here, and as you, you know, think about this, the sequencing, the linkages, is this something very specific to Africa, or is it you know, applicable elsewhere as well? Um, sure. Okay. I think, uh, first of all, as I just mentioned, uh, Africa in many ways uh, has been uh, crucial uh, to the uh, emergence and development and the flourishing of uh, how to be. And for example, uh, as I just mentioned about Francis things so his efficacy of uh, sovereignty as responsibility. So in many ways, uh, Francis Ding's ideas again does provide, as I mentioned, does provide a very important uh, intellectual uh, roots uh, backbone again yeah for the R2P, and then on the other hand again what we have also uh, witnessed is uh, when the International Criminal Court, uh, the ICC, was established in uh, 1998. Uh, so of those. Uh, 123 uh, state parties, I mean the signatories of the ICC, some 33 of those are African countries. So this has actually made Africa uh, become the uh, largest uh, regional bloc of this assembly of state parties. And so I think in this sense, again, what this has highlighted is the uh, enthusiastic support uh, coming from African countries uh, uh, during the the ICC's establishment back in uh, uh, 1998. But I think uh, at the same time, what we have also uh, witnessed is uh, there has been a growing uh, backlash uh, of the ICC okay, among the African countries, especially since uh, the the former Sudanese president uh, uh, was, I mean Omar al Bashir, okay, was uh, issued an arrest warrant okay, by the ICC. Right. So I think in in this sense, uh, I think uh, also one of the reasons why situating. Uh, this protection, uh, this ought to be an ICC again, in the protection first, justice later. Uh, temple sequences, first of all, uh, it can help enabling the promotion of uh, responsible sovereignty in Africa. On the other hand, it can also help uh, mitigate again this uh, growing backlash of the ICC uh, uh, among the African countries. And I think this is also. Well, I would say this is a rationale okay, behind uh, why uh, uh, this temporal, why you have to pay attention to this temporal sequence in terms of situating out to be an ICC, the protection first and justice later uh, uh, sequence. Mm, thank you. So and this is interesting as well. One of the, the key, I guess, debates and maybe even conflicts that uh, emerge in the book is that relationship between the International Criminal Court the ICC and uh, African states, and part of one of the sort of bones of contention is then, you know, 
that, as you said, right, that arrest warrant that was issued to uh, Bashir in connection to you know crimes in Darfur. Maybe you could tell us a little bit more about this relationship between the ICC and African states, and what are some of the myths and realities around this this relationship? So are you referring to the relationship between ICC and Africa, right? Yeah, yeah. Sure. Yeah. So I think, like I said, uh, during the early stage, I mean, when the uh, ICC was established in the late 1990s, so we have actually witnessed quite uh, uh, enthusiastic uh, support and endorsement uh, coming from many African uh, countries, right? Uh, I mean, for example, um, Senegal okay, was actually the very first country in the world uh, to ratify the, the Rome Statue. Uh, so I think it is, in this sense, okay, uh, I think it is not an exaggeration for us to say uh, African countries uh, did highlight okay, their uh, support. I mean, there's, and also express their steadfast commitment uh, to this uh, newly established international uh, judicial institution. But as I said, again, tw- uh, 2008 or 2009 was proved to be uh, a turning point, was proved to be a turning point uh, for the relationship uh, between ICC and Africa. This is the year in which uh, the Sudanese president Omar al-Bashir uh, was uh, being um, I mean the ICC has issued arrest warrants okay, for the arrest uh, of the former Sudanese president and so exactly because of this uh, very uh, I would say uh, exactly because okay, of this very uh, a significant decision okay, being made by the uh, ICC. So what we have witnessed uh, is uh, the court uh, was sparkling uh, a backlash. Uh, for example, again, in the words uh, of the former AU African Union Commission Chairperson uh, Jin Peng. So this is what he said, and I quote, for example, rather than pursuing justice around the world, the ICC was focusing only on Africa and was undermining rather than assisting African efforts to solve its problem. So I think seeing this in the eyes of many African leaders, so the ICC is nothing but bias uh, against uh, African countries by targeting okay, their uh, heads of states. And so I think in many ways, uh, I would say, uh, since then, okay, we uh, have seen, okay, uh, or we have actually witnessed this irreversible, uh, 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 I mean, the deterioration of relationship between ICC and Africa. And in many ways, uh, we still actually can see uh, the, the relationship between ICC and Africa, okay, uh, to be improved in the foreseeable future. Mm. Yeah, thank you for that. Uh, so, in a, I suppose in a similar way, 
thinking about the relationship between the ICC and, and the African states and actors, as you, as you described. There are also some wider challenges around R2P itself as a, a concept and as it's put into practice. Um, what are some of the arguments for and against R2P and, and how do those relate to Africa? Sure. Uh, so for the uh, believers, or uh, for the proponents of uh, R2P, uh, the responsibility to protect uh, the principle uh, can actually uh, help promoting a okay, responsible sovereignty. Uh, this is simply because uh, sovereignty uh, has been uh, reconceptualized as, uh, in this sense, like a sovereignty is uh, no longer means. Uh, 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 authority, control, and non-interference, but instead, okay, it entails uh, a responsibility right, to protect its people. And another uh, 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 argument okay, being made by the proponents believers of R2P is uh, R2P uh, is a victim-centered approach. Okay, in other words, okay, by highlighting uh, the importance of uh, protecting civilians or vulnerable populations uh, from uh, mass atrocities. So this is actually about addressing uh, the needs of the, of those victims, again, okay, other than uh, highlighting the rights again okay, of uh, outsiders again okay, to intervene into the domestic uh, affairs again okay, of a sovereign state and. Yeah, so this is actually about also a reconceptualization of the meaning of humanitarian intervention. I see this is not just about highlighting the right to intervene, but instead it is about highlighting the responsibility to protect uh, the victims or the, the uh, vulnerable population. Therefore, the uh, critics or for the skeptics uh, of uh, R2P. Uh, they are convinced. I mean, so they are not convinced. They are not convinced that uh, R2P uh, is what I suggest is a victim-centric uh, response. But instead, okay, they tend to see R2P is just uh, uh, essentially the same as the humanitarian uh, intervention. Right. So this is still about an excuse or pretext like being used by Western countries uh, to uh, intervene in the domestic affairs of uh, some other countries and thereby violating okay, their sovereignty and the uh, territorial integrity okay, of those countries. Um, yeah, so in other words, okay, uh, for the critics and the skeptics, R2B is, is just something not fundamentally different okay, from the theory and practice of uh, humanitarian intervention. Mm, right. Thank you. So as a, a follow-up here, given that you know, we, you've identified for us, and as you do in the book, right, that there are both the believers and the skeptics around R2P, and then on the other hand, you have this sometimes tense relationship between the ICC and African states. So we have these, these two sort of areas of, of contention, if you will. 
how then does the your idea or you know what you discuss in the book as uh, you know protection first and uh, justice later? How does that deal with these challenges in both of these areas for R2P and ICC? Okay, so the question is how. Like, sorry, can you just repeat? Uh, yeah, sure, no problem. This, so. so if you know you're advocating or you're you you've been sort of building this argument for protection first, justice later. Uh, how does that approach take into account? You know the debates around you know those for and against R2P, but then also, you know this these difficult relationships with African heads of state and African states with the ICC. Does your protection first justice later try to resolve or take a stand on these these debates around these two institutions? Uh, sure. I think uh, first of all, uh, when I'm talking about the uh, importance of situating okay how to be an ICC in the protection first uh, justice later temporal sequence is simply because. Uh, okay, given okay that the fact that okay, we have uh, witnessed okay the, the the changing expectation, I mean changing international expectation of responding to uh, genocide and mass atrocities uh, in the uh, I mean in the aftermath of the uh, uh, Rwanda genocide in nineteen ninety four. So again, the, the the question okay that we are tackling with. It's not about whether uh, uh, the international community should uh, respond and react, but this is about a question of when and how okay, those uh, international protection and punishment efforts uh, can be invoked okay, in those conflict situations. But I mean, as we can see, uh, say, Actually, one, one of the, the very important lessons I think that the international community has learned uh, in the aftermath of the 1994 uh, Rwanda genocide is uh, the international criminal justice uh, has uh, sometimes okay, been used, I would say, instrumentalized okay, by the international policymakers. Uh, in other words, upholding justice uh, or, uh, or, or highlighting uh, accountability uh, uh, has somewhat uh, been used for substituting or replacing the civilian protection efforts okay, when those efforts should have been uh, invoked. So, the, actually, one of the the, the I would say the rationale again okay, behind my my advocacy or the, my uh, yeah my argument for adopting this protection first and justice later is is that uh, it is very important okay for us to uh, uh, to prevent okay the the ICC I mean the National Criminal Court from uh, being uh, Politically instrumentalized, okay, by uh, other countries, or also including okay, this UN Security Council, for substituting or replacing okay, the necessary uh, civilian protection efforts. And also, as we can see, uh, 
R2P I mean uh, given its uh, close and historic connection uh, with the African continent so it seems like okay the ultimate principle uh, has not met any uh, strong or fundamental opposition okay from the African countries but instead uh, the 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 ultimate principle okay has widely been perceived okay by many African countries as promoting uh, responsible sovereignty okay but while at the same time as we can see the ICC especially since uh, as I said okay, since the the court's issuance of an arrest warrants okay, uh, against the uh, Sudanese president uh, uh, Obama Bashir so the court uh, has actually uh, met with some very strong uh, resistance, like okay, opposition coming from those African countries, from those African countries, because the court uh, has since been perceived okay as biased, uh, 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 a court okay, which is being uh, used okay by some Western countries okay, for targeting uh, African leaders. So in this sense, okay, these protection first uh, justice later sequence can actually help um, yeah, mitigating okay, this uh, African resistance okay, to the ICC and the international criminal justice uh, efforts. Because after all, uh, what is important okay, for African countries is about promoting uh, responsible sovereignty okay, other than uh, triggering uh, regime change, uh, I'll say through the use of the ICC. Mm, thank you, and that, that really helps, you know, explain further, right? The, this crucial connection that you're making around sequencing and, uh, you know, in the use of these or deployment of these institutions. I wanted to switch focus of our conversation here uh, and talk a little bit more about the process that you used in, in developing the book and the research. I wonder if you could tell us about the research you conducted for the book and what are some of the you know, conceptual and theoretical elements that you were that were important for you to address? Okay, sure. Uh, I'd say the uh, overarching uh, theoretical framework that I rely on in this book uh, is the English School of uh, International Relations, or in particular the concept of uh, international society. And this notion uh, of international society basically is that um, a society of states uh, 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 to exist uh, when a group of states, okay, uh, being conscious of certain uh, common interests and common values, uh, form a society in the sense that they, they conceive of themselves as bound by a common set of rules, okay, and in their relations with one another, and thereby sharing in the working of a common uh, institutions, and so. I mean, this is exactly uh, what I have been trying uh, to advocate. So this is about uh, the the changing expectation within the international society, like in terms of 
uh, responding uh, to genocide and mass atrocities in a more effective and uh, consistent manner. Again, this is not a question of whether, right? Uh, uh, but this is a question of when and how uh, R2P and ICC with protection and punishment efforts uh, should be invoked in those conflict situations. And another, uh, so to speak, theoretical framework uh, or conceptual uh, yeah, framework that I rely on is, as I said, uh, this is the path uh, dependence uh, processes in politics. And I think actually one of the um, I would say one yeah one of the uh, merits well say one of the key strains okay of these path uh, dependent processes uh, in politics is path dependency can actually help uh, narrowing conceptually the choice set okay and link decision making through time. And so once a particular path gets established or chosen, uh, then uh, it would actually help setting a self-reinforcing process in motion and by making the reversal of particular causes of action very difficult. And so in this sense, uh, if we uh, try to put this okay, path-dependent processes into this context of international responses to genocide and mass atrocities, then, again, the scenario that we are actually witnessing is, again, this so-called uh, R2P and ICC paths, again, have been effectively uh, established right, since uh, the emergence, again, of this R2P principle in 2001, okay, and the establishment of the ICC, I mean, this permanent International Criminal Court in 1998. So, in this sense, again, international policymakers again would find uh, dismissing again the protection and punishment efforts uh, very difficult uh, or even virtually impossible, right? because this uh, civilian protection and judicial interventionist paths have already been. Uh, effectively established. So I think uh, this is basically the, the two, okay, so, so, so to speak, uh, theoretical conceptual frameworks okay, that uh, I have relied on okay, through mm. writing this book. Yeah, thank you, Raymond. So then in the book, you sort of then turn your focus to the three case studies that you mentioned in the beginning in Uganda, Darfur, and Kenya. But perhaps you could just tell us a little bit about um, these cases as you analyze them. What are some of the dynamics here of protection first and justice later, and presumably some lessons that we can learn from these cases? Sure, sure. Yeah. Uh, actually, uh, one of the, the um, reasons, okay, why uh, these three cases, I mean, these three case studies, uh, chosen okay, in this book is uh, simply because uh, they actually uh, a manifestation I mean the three case studies are a manifestation okay, of uh, 
the importance and the uh, I mean the importance of timing and sequencing uh, of the relationship between R2B and ICC. So, for example, uh, in the case of uh, northern Uganda, so this is actually the case in which we have witnessed uh, ICC, like a judicial intervention, okay, being carried out first. I mean, bef yeah, before uh, any uh, protection efforts uh, were invoked. So. In 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 in, in, uh, in fact, okay, the court's involvement in in this case of Northern Uganda was the very first case, uh, yeah, the very first case again okay, to be referred by a state party, okay, in the history of the ICC. So in other words, actually, this was a case of uh, self referral. This is about the Ugandan government uh, voluntarily uh, uh, referring. Okay, the, the, the conflict situation uh, to the ICC. But since then, what we are seeing is uh, there has been a tendency okay, for the international policymakers okay, to focus exclusively on uh, bringing uh, Joseph Kony okay, and the laws resistant army. So that's one of the the, the most notorious uh, rebels groups okay, uh, uh, in northern Uganda. Yeah, so so uh, yeah, as I said, there has been a tendency okay, for the national policymakers to focus exclusively on bringing Joseph Kony and the LRA leadership to justice. And but the inevitable consequence then is again okay, this has uh, somewhat. Uh, Discourage okay the laws resistant army the leadership for negotiating a peaceful resolution to the conflict, and so in this sense, you see uh, this is a, exactly an improper sequence of what I say justice first protection later approach, and the the internal consequence that we are seeing here is the ICC's uh, judicial intervention uh, has made the international efforts to provide immediate protection to the victims and the civilians in northern Uganda uh, uh, a lot more difficult. Okay, then in the case of uh, Darfur and Sudan, so another case study that uh, has been chosen in the book. Okay, so basically what we are seeing here in this case, okay, is the uh, Simultaneous uh, invocation of R2P and ICC uh, in this situation, and and I think, but of course, uh, talking about the case of Darfur, okay, which is fundamentally different from the case of uh, Northern Uganda, it's because I say when we're talking about the case of Northern Uganda, so this is basically the uh, conflict existing between a rebel group, okay, and the government. But the case of what the case of Darfur reflects is a textbook example okay, of a government's unwillingness right, to uh, protect its uh, civilians right, or, or uh, prosecute the perpetrators of mass atrocities. But instead, in fact, the uh, Sudanese government. 
could be said as the perpetrator itself, right? So then what we are seeing here is uh, the threat of the ICC criminal prosecution. Like I say, the, the issuance of the arrest warrants towards the Sudanese president, right, had not fundamentally changed uh, the response okay, coming from the Sudanese government. So apart from uh, constraining President Bashir's his freedom of movement, as we can see, the ICC's judicial intervention uh, was not able to uh, deter or prevent the president from committing further atrocity crimes against uh, the civilians okay, in Darfur. And so, in this sense, uh, at the same, I mean, at the same time, uh, the issuance of the arrest warrants against, uh, against the Sudanese president had somewhat increased uh, the Sudanese government's distrust okay, of the hybrid peacekeeping force. Uh, it is a yeah, hybrid peacekeeping force between uh, provided okay, by the UN and the African Union, because the force has since been has since then uh, been perceived okay, by the Sudanese government as a spy, okay, looking to arrest the president of the ICC. Okay, so in this sense, okay, uh, as a, as I argue in the book, this is another example of improper sequence like of R2P and ICC. As we can see, uh, the court its involvement. Uh, has created okay, an additional an additional uh, this incentive okay, for the Sudanese government to cooperate okay, with the uh, hybrid peacekeeping force, and so in this sense, okay, the, the the international protection efforts okay, uh, uh, could not actually help uh, yeah, providing immediate protection for this for the victims and civilians uh, in that area. Then. Uh, the case of Kenya, okay, the third case study that I have uh, chosen in this book, okay, what this case showed is exactly that the protection first, justice later, this temporal sequence okay, did work effectively in stopping the further loss of life and violence. So by putting the uh, protection of civilians first, I mean, at the heart of the national uh, mediation effort. So uh, what we have witnessed is the conflict parties, okay, they were able to reach a power-sharing agreement, okay, thereby resulting in an immediate uh, secession of the post-election uh, violence uh, uh, during the 2007-2008 uh, presidential um, election so uh, so therefore so instead of pushing again okay, the uh, conflict parties further into the corner so the ICC judicial intervention in Kenya okay following the secession of the post electoral violence uh, did make some logical sense right and I think this is especially uh, as we can see, uh, this proper sequence of uh, putting protection first and then upholding justice later can help 
shaping okay, uh, a satisfying outcome that we have seen. Right? This is about, first of all, stopping the further violence uh, in the country, okay, stopping the further loss of lives, at the same time, uh, perpetrators okay, uh, have been uh, brought into justice. Yeah, so this is basically what I can see that so-called dynamics uh, of these uh, R2BA and ICC linkages uh, in these mm. three case studies. Yeah, thank you. So just to hi- highlight Kenya briefly, um, and I suppose to put a timestamp on our conversation, we have elections coming up later this summer in, in Kenya. Um, and given that Kenya, as you said, right, we see a very specific kind of sequencing here that was positive um, for protecting first and justice later. Uh, what do you what do you foresee for you know, RTP and for this sequencing in, in Kenya for this year. I don't know if you have any insights or expectations for how things might go. Sure. I think uh, I'm still uh, yeah, convinced uh, the case of Kenya uh, is uh, can still be considered as actually what uh Kobe Annan suggests a, a successful example of how um, to be at work. I think because that the importance uh, of uh, this case is is that how to be can be used okay, as a prism okay, for uh, addressing okay, for addressing uh, the 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 uh, issue right this issue. Uh, of uh, protecting civilians okay, from further violence, okay, and perhaps most importantly, uh, exactly okay, because okay, of the application of this ultimate prism okay, into this uh, say this post electoral violence in Kenya. So what we have actually witnessed is is that uh, yeah, what we have actually witnessed. Uh, yeah, is that uh, say in the in the say during the twenty seventeen uh, yeah the, the presidential election? So we we haven't actually witnessed once again anything. I mean, the, the, I mean, you have, haven't actually witnessed okay the the violence okay, like the scale uh, during the two thousand and seven and two thousand and eight presidential election in, and in, and and its aftermath. So I think in 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 many ways. Uh, I think I would suggest uh, this. Uh, yeah, I mean this ought to be. Uh, I mean this uh, protection first, justice later uh, approach. Okay, does help Kenya. Uh, yeah, does help Kenya. Okay, to. Uh, yeah, does help Kenya. Okay, to transform. Okay, once again itself. Okay, to become a politically. Uh, stable country. So I, I would say in the upcoming 2012 uh, presidential election, I would say I, I'm kind of um, optimistic that I, I, I won't expect anything along the scale of 2007-2008 uh, because uh, I think you said the world is worth watching and the leaders in the country, they have, they, they have definitely learned uh, the lessons in the hard way. Mm. 
And I suppose that adds to your argument about this, again, these African roots of sovereignty and responsibility, you know, kind of coming or being at home in that respect in Africa. Um, so just a, a couple of last questions here for you, because uh, I've taken up quite a bit of your time so far. Um, I just wonder if you could comment briefly on some of your other research that you're doing, uh, but particularly how, in, in your view, you know, the importance of the sequencing and focus on R2P perhaps has any connections or intersections with China's involvement in Africa, which has increased quite a bit in the last several years? Sure, okay. Uh, I think first of all, uh, China um, is also okay, one of the uh, one of the many UN member states, okay, which has endorsed okay, this how um, to be principle right back uh, at the uh, back in the uh, 2005 uh, UN World Sabine. Like, although uh, we can see that like, China has not been a very uh, enthusiastic uh, supporter I mean, of this principle, actually, uh, yeah, because of its uh, uh, kind of uh, I would say uh, stubborn uh, insistence again okay, on the uh, absolute uh, concept concept of sovereignty. Right. And also, on the other hand, um, as we can see, while we are witnessing again the uh, China's is growing, uh, yeah, activism, okay, uh, into Africa in uh, recent years. Um, yeah, I would say, uh, yeah, I would say, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, I would say. Um, uh, let me put it in this way. Let me put it in this way. Um, actually, one of the uh, most distinctive, I would say, yeah, one of the most distinctive uh, features, uh, yeah, one of the most distinctive uh, features, okay, uh, in African politics that we have witnessed so far is uh, a phenomenon which can be known as uh, present for life. A present for life uh, uh, phenomenon. Okay, and in many ways, okay, uh, the fact that okay, President Xi Jinping, okay, uh, has uh, abolished okay uh, the constitutional term limit, okay, for I mean for for the position of the Chinese president, okay, has actually somewhat okay provided quite a um, bad example again okay, for African countries because that may actually help and bolden okay those uh, dictators or those uh, African leaders again okay, who have been in power for a very long time and and so that's why I think I would suggest uh, it is still uh, more important actually for uh, if for the African countries again okay, to, to uphold um, the outer principle again okay, by treating this uh, by perceiving this again okay, as uh, the promotion again okay, of responsible sovereignty. Okay, this is not about 
a, a triggering regime change. Okay, not like okay, what the ICC uh, has been trying to do okay, by issuing uh, arrest warrants okay, for uh, some specific African leaders. And yeah, I think uh, it's pretty, pretty much pretty much what I would like to say. Yeah, thank you. So just to help us sort of uh, wrap things up a little bit more here, um, might you be able to tell us about any future projects that are related to this work or other things you're working on that are perhaps completely different? Or if you could tell us about that. Sure. I think, uh, yeah, I would say yes. So, um, so currently uh, I am uh, planning uh, to conduct a, a research project Okay, on the uh, international responses okay to the uh, Rohingya crisis. So this year has actually uh, marked the fifth anniversary uh, of the uh, Rohingya crisis. I, and so uh, what I'm trying to do, or say the the main purpose of this research, uh, is to examine okay, the uh, international uh, society's response okay, to this crisis, which many suggest as the world's fastest uh, growing uh, refugee crisis. So what especially I am interested in uh, exploring is okay, why the uh, international society's response okay, to this Rohingya crisis seems to be uh, ineffective and also uh, I mean despite this changing international expectations uh, that I have suggested and also I would like to explore like what are some of the principal obstacles to the effective uh, international uh, engagement civilian protection and punishment efforts in this uh, regular crisis and Another research project, okay, which is not okay, totally related okay, to the R2P and ICC, uh, is, uh, is a project which I'm planning is to, as well examining uh, the uh, triangular relationship okay, among uh, Taiwan, uh, mainland China, and Africa. I give a particular focus on uh, examining uh, different policy approaches of uh, Taipei and Beijing towards Africa. And the purpose of this approach okay, is to uh, make sense of how uh, Taiwan and, and, and China cultivate okay, the diplomatic relations okay, with African countries okay, and assess the uh, diplomatic competition between uh, Taiwan and China in Africa in the context of uh, what is being known as the dollar diplomacy. Yeah, so these are basically the two uh, research projects that uh, yeah, I'm uh, working on. Mm. Oh, that's fascinating. And I excited to read more about that especially for us to learn a little bit more about you know that the the international domestic implications of china's involvement at home as well as in the continent of africa well i just one last question to to finish up our time together at the new books network we often ask you know if there are any books or films or any other sort of media that you'd recommend to our listeners that have been influential for you and i wondered if there's a couple of things that you might recommend yeah two books yeah we're doing two books that uh i i really uh enjoyed reading i think the first is 
uh, entitled African Reckoning, A Quest for Good Governance. And this is a book uh, being uh, co-written by uh, Francis Ding and uh, Terence uh, Leons in, uh, I think back in 1998. Again, what uh, yeah, this book tries to investigate is how the uh, reconceptualization like of our understanding of sovereignty may actually help promote uh, better governance in Africa in terms of uh, yeah, managing conflict and protecting uh, human rights. Okay, another book uh, which I would like to uh, recommend uh, is uh, named The uh, Responsibility to Protect from uh, promise to uh, practice. So this is a book uh, being uh, co-written okay, by uh, Alex Bellamy and Edward Luck okay, uh, back in 2018. Okay, and I think what this book tries to uh, 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 what, what the author in this book tries to try to do okay, is to examine uh, how the outer principle is uh, being uh, transformed okay, from a, a, a principle right, from a principle uh, uh, I mean from yeah from a principle from a conceptual development again okay, to uh, yeah to, to the one which is being practically uh, implemented again okay, in actual scenarios I think uh, this book uh, in my opinion, okay, uh, uh, is quite uh, an eye opener for me because actually it helps us to understand uh, how how to be the principle actually can uh, be can be uh, uh, implemented again okay, actual scenarios. So because it's not just about. Uh, uh, so-called walk the walk, but if we, have, I mean, definitely we actually have to talk the talk. Right? We have to we have to try to uh, uh, make this uh, international expectation okay, by uh, by uh, yeah putting this into practice. I mean, this is perhaps the most important thing for us to to, to say again okay, when when we are talking about changing international expectation. Uh, uh, for responding to genocide and mass atrocities. Mm, thank you. Yeah, the, the great recommendations there. I appreciate it. So um, I've been speaking with Dr. Raymond Kwonsan Lau uh, on your new book, Raymond, uh, Responding to Mass Atrocities in Africa, Protection First and Justice Later, and that was published this year um, with Routledge. Thanks, Raymond, for your time. I uh, really appreciate it. Um, and it's been great to talk with you. Yeah, thanks again, uh, Professor uh, Chris uh, Levy, okay, for your kind invitation. And yeah, hopefully, and, uh, I mean, look forward, okay, look forward to continuing our dialogue and great. some other occasions. Thank you.